Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name's Podcast Mike and I help put together the podcast with Will. So the podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus recently, but we did realise that there is a huge backlog of episodes uh, and we wanted to create a selection of different moments and different guests from the history of the podcast over the last few years and tie them together thematically in a sort of collection series. Uh, And we're going to be putting these out over the next few weeks on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we're going to start it off today with the theme of comedy. Now, Will's obviously a comedian. He's spoken to lots of comedians on this podcast, so we might actually end up doing two episodes on this theme. But today you'll hear experiences from some Australian comedy legends like Michelle Laurie and Judith Lucy, and we're going to kick it all off with a man who's been performing for over 30 years, and he's created some of our favourite characters, like Uncle Arthur and Russell Coit. He's one of Australia's favourite comedic actors, So enjoy this piece from Will's chat with Glenn Robbins. And if you'd like to see Will live, he's touring his show Will Eagle in Townsville on November 16th at the Civic Theatre and November 17th at the J in Noosa. I saw the show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and it was great. He's also doing some work in progress shows from December 7th to December 15th at the Comedy Store in Sydney. Head to willanderson.com for more information and tickets. But for now, over to Glenn Robbins. Enjoy. I have been starting by getting the uh, guests to introduce themselves, so I'm going to go with that for again and see if that uh, reveals anything. Uh, who are you, guest? Oh, so I, do I introduce me? Yeah, or who are you? you? No, I, I'm, they know who I am. Oh, it's okay, because you called, said that. It's called yes. Willosophy and I'm Will Anderson. And to be honest, they probably knew that when they downloaded it. If you've just stumbled onto a podcast and you've accidentally downloaded it and you don't know what it is, well, good on you, but... Uh, this is I'm, I'm I'm Will Anderson and this is Willosophy. But uh, I have a guest and I like the guests to introduce sure, themselves because sure. I think what you say about yourself sure. might be interesting to the audience. Sure. Okay. I'm Glenn Robbins. I came to the hotel that you're staying in currently. I went to reception and they thought I was your driver. Not that yes. I expect that. <laughs> It's true. I will be be recognised. I mean, but uh, to be but honest, I enjoyed the thought of being your driver. Uh, to be honest, I, I when he rang me up and said that it was my driver here to be picked up, and I was like, I knew that it was you, obviously, because I knew you were coming, and I was like. You're probably the most famous person I've had on this podcast. Like, I was like, this is a big guest. No. And the dude thinks it's, I'm, I'm, you're my driver. It had nothing to do with fame. It was purely, Were you wearing a hat? No. <laughs> Did you have a mobile it, phone? It's not that I, I would assume, but I, I just think that he is. I, I don't assume anyone knows who I am. I, I never assume that. Right. But I, he did assume that I was a driver. And I felt like saying, what makes you think that I'm a driver? What is it about me wearing yep. semi-casual clothes? Where's my? I mean, you're not even dressed up for a driver. No, no. I would expect a higher class of driver, to yeah. be honest. So, I'm doing uh, well. Yeah, I'm so, a driver in a hat and a coat. <laughs> so uh, where are we going? You're going to drive me somewhere psychologically. Uh, yeah. look, I'm a little concerned. I'll be. I'll be. I'll be honest with you're you. You're certainly the most concerned guest I've had so yeah, far. Yeah. Well, only because look, you know, I I think things and I feel things, but yeah. I don't. I you're good at articulating them. You know what? I'm 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 good at. I'm probably good at doing other people's words. I'm not. I'm not as good at doing my own words. That's interesting. I, and, already. And, I, and and I. 
I will be honest. I do indulge in the I don't know. You know, I don't know what I'm going to say. What's my opinion? Not really sure. I, do, I indulge in that a bit. And so I should really get over that. Yeah. And I have had people say things back to me, and they'll say they'll, they'll talk about the, the psychology of something, and I'll go, you know what? That's really interesting. The, the way you've thought that. And they'll say, you told me that a couple of years ago. And, I'll, and I won't have any memory of actually saying right. it. So, so really I should have interviewed a bunch of other people about your exactly, philosophy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, do you like is whether or not you like biography or autobiography. I mean, maybe I would be better biographically studied as opposed to autobiographically. I, I like this already because I think that is something very interesting about you and the, the career path that you have chosen in many ways because – uh, you are a comedian and you are a stand-up comedian. You were, you do stand-up comedy, but you mostly do character, do character stuff. Yes, you yes. do other people's stuff. Yes, I Or do. your own stuff, yes. but like in a third-person yes, character. Yes, yes. Do you think that is part of like your psychology and yes. part of... Yes, I do. I think, I, I think naturally there's a, there's a level of insecurity uh, that goes with me believing that I can be funny and there's a level of security that I can hide behind a character and perhaps doing other people's words. I mean, there's no, yes, I've written sketch comedy. I haven't written anything longer form, but there's, some, there is, there's something about the confidence and the boldness of a character that, that takes me places that I don't even understand because right. that opens up a different side of my head. When I come into my, myself directly I, and I sit next to people like you or Dave O'Neill or Dave Hughes, I often say... I wish I'd said that. Having said that, I did a show called The Panel for seven years yep. and they approached me to do that show and I went, why would you want me to do this show? I don't understand why you would want me, want me to do it. And they said, we, we, like, we, we just think you'd be good at it. Anyway, I did it and it took me, I think, six weeks to really get my head around it uh, and it wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't me going, ah, I've worked it out. It happened unconsciously organically whatever you want to gut whatever you want to call it and then i would i would go into that show with a page of stuff written in front of me point point form maybe a little joke here a little story there but invariably the best shows were the shows that that just happened off the cuff so that was a couple of things one was trusting my instincts and um two we'd often go to a break and rob would say to me rob sitch would say to me where did that come from? And I, I would say I don't know. I mean, but it would even make me laugh. So I think there's a there's a where, so okay. So I've got two things about this that I'm really interested in. The first one is where do you think it came from? Like, how do you get into a state that you allow those moments to come to you? Because I do think there is a lot to be said about the idea of boredom, a lot about the idea of when you're writing something, of going for a walk, or going for a swim, or doing something, and let the ideas just fall into your head in the yeah. right way. Yeah. Sometimes I spoke to Steve the cricketer once yeah. and I asked him about you know facing the West Indies the most terrifying bowling attack in the world yeah. like how do you make decisions of what shot to play when someone's bowling it at you nearly 200 kilometers an hour yeah. and he said you can't no. he said you've got no time to make a decision what you got to do is all the training and all the hard work and then when you're out there in the middle get out of your own way yes. and let your instincts take over now is that what's happening that's it well I'm, I'm when I said you asked me to do the show and you I, I sent you a little email uh, which which said something like do I need to think about some areas uh, for preparation because there I go I want to bring a plate to the table right. or do we just talk and reveal my you know neurosis and uh, see what happens and I break down and, and you know it makes the papers. You, you um, did say, you did say, will you, will you make me cry like Andrew did? And I was like, well, I haven't had anyone cry yet, so well, let's see. But I think you're exactly right. I think that 
if I had a this is not a core philosophy, but and I'm, I don't think I'm you know changing the world by saying this. I think I think the good stuff undoubtedly lives in the unconscious, and it, and it and I often use the the analogy or the metaphor. I'm not sure what, which is which is which, uh, which is a. A, a baby deer coming to drink from the stream and if you try to coax it out because you want to see it you know drinking lapping up the water um it won't come out but if you go very quiet right. and just wait in its own time so in other words if i say to myself i just want to be i just want to be funny but just let it be don't try too hard there's a gate that opens up that is so strongly guarded by the ego for fear of embarrassment, failure, death, uh, whatever way that is, death by an audience or actual, actual death, um, that too many decisions and too many creative decisions and life decisions are made by this thing called the ego who, who is too all-empowering. So ego, ego to me is a dirty word. As much as I think I've got a big ego and it's served me well, I do believe if I can go quiet, allow flow to happen on a walk, on a good conversation, or hearing back something I've told someone, that that's where the good stuff lives. Now, I know that's overly simple, but I know if I just, if I don't know the answer, if I just let it be and I sleep on it, invariably I'll get the right answer. You know, this, and I, I, I'm lucky enough to play golf with a psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry, and, um, I said to him one day, you know, sometimes I think I get a bit neurotic and I think a lot of stuff, but then I just go, yeah, but what do you really think? And usually, yeah, but what do I really think is, is the rational. Now, I can criticise that in myself, but without the irrational, you don't get the good stuff either. You don't get the weird stuff. You don't get the... You don't, you don't see things, you know. If it's purely rational, then you just go through the day being pretty boring right so, so, so if, you can, if you can have the wouldn't it be funny ifs and and i maybe i am dying and if you can and i'm sure that's a prism you view the world through and if you can utilize that without it let the then you can get to the the artistic the unconscious the side of yourself as opposed to but if you live in it you get a distorted view of the world right it's yeah, it, look it's very interesting that point you make about the balance between the ego you know being important for what you do because yeah. clearly like as a performer yeah. or anyone who's trying to do anything publicly or anyone to be honest like the very idea of aspiration to doing something like what you do has ego bound up in the like from the minute I as a 15 year old kid sat on the farm and saw a guy on Letterman doing stand up comedy and went I yep. want to do that yep. like that's an incredibly egotistic thing for a 15 year old kid to yes. think yep. like even though for me because I didn't know what that was yep. or how to do it or what yep. it would involve yep. in any way I just in my head was like I reckon I could do that yep. now that by itself is an act of ego and without that, you'd never get on stage. Without that, you'd never get up in front of people and you'd never do the work. You wouldn't be able to do it. But the ego can also be too much and get in the way of you doing good work. That's right. So in the, at the point of creation, or do you depend on that ego or do you – do you? because I actually hope that I open. I know I can do things from my ego and I, and I – as much as I – We've had discussions about this before over lunch, which is I, I believe that my stand-up is, is derived more from my ego than my instinct. I believe right. that there are things that I probably should be talking about on stage that I'm not brave enough to talk about. I tend to um, um, 
uh, not let go on stage enough for fear of, and you get addicted and caught. So you just get into a bit of a tight orbit. Now, the way to get out of that is to take some risks or just keep on doing it and eventually your voice will come through. You see a lot of people when they start out, you know, they'll start out and they're basically what I call cover comedians. They've stolen a a sensibility or a music or a rhythm and you go, yeah, but you haven't got to the good stuff yet. And it's okay to it's be like, like that. You know what? It's like, I mean, yeah. I use this analogy quite a lot. Yeah. Like Oasis was the be- were the best Beatles cover band you've yeah. ever seen in your life. Yeah. And they yeah. were great at it. Yeah. It doesn't make Oasis a bad band. No. But some bands like listened to the Beatles and then became something else completely different. Yes, yes. And I think that in an artistic sense, it's okay for a while. And eventually musicians find their, their, their music and we find – our voice, and if you can stay in that place, like you have, that, that, that's now. I don't. I haven't had. I look. I will admit on the panel, I did find that. I haven't found it as much on stage as I'd like to, but I find it more when I'm with people. I probably prefer being on stage with people. There's a there's a, there's a certain because because being on stage catches me off guard. Right. Whereas being on stage by myself, I'm completely in control. And thereby, Interesting. Yeah, so thereby, yep. well, if you're in control, if you're flying the, the aeroplane, it's not going to crash. So therefore we're going to do A, B and C, which is the ego saying, don't you dare embarrass me in front right. of these people. Is there, in- is there also an element in that of the fact that you're a guy who's less like the guy who wants to be flying the plane. You're more the guy who wants to be, you know, doing the the cheeky, you know, announcement Absolutely. on the plane when someone else is flying yes. it, or yes. making There's, sure everyone's yep. having a good time, or yep. Yep. throwing yep. a spanner in the works. Yeah, I'm the I I sat on the end of the, on the on the on the left hand side of the panel for that very reason. It wasn't a conscious thing. That was the only seat that was left. But I ended <laughs> up going that that is this is a good spot for me yep. because it allows me to just to chime in. There's no doubt if we if if we go on a road trip, I don't want to drive the car. I want to be in the back seat with my ass out the window, right? Because I want to. I want. I enjoy mischief. I want to play. And when you have to be responsible and keep your eyes on the road, I now the, the good people like Letterman are able to keep their eyes on the road, but still keep the child alive, sure, and still play. And that's that's something to aim for. And I dare say that's somewhere you've got to. I don't know if that's something that I've got to, but that's something that I battle with. Yeah, because like uh, you know, because of the role that I've played, and 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 this comes back to the second point I wanted to make about the panel anyway, which is about the idea of role playing and how important like being part of an ensemble and knowing what role is yours to play and how important that can be. Really important, right? Yes. So like to use the panel as an example, your role on that show was not to run with the ball. You, you were, you know, to use a rugby league analogy, you're the winger. You know, yes, yeah. you're the guy that, that they yep. wanted. Like a lot of people will do a lot of the heavy lifting, yep. and they'll and then they'll throw it to you, and yep. you're meant to score, yep. or you're meant to do something dazzling in the middle that nobody was expecting, yes. or whatever. Yes, right? Exactly right. But yep. it's inter- But to know that, like, because at the start, I think everybody's temptation, and again, this probably goes back to that idea of ego: is I need to be the most important person. Yes, I need to be the star. Yep. It seems to me that you. Often, like it's it's interesting to me if I look at your work across the board, you are definitely one of the most known and beloved like comic actors and comedians this country's ever produced. But you haven't like apart from all those adventures, exactly right. There's not much that you've really been like the leading or the like. It's mostly been ensemble stuff, and probably because of the things that we've just talked about. And it's and it's not that I fear. Look, yeah, I probably look. There's no doubt. Fear is a major element in what I do. The, yep. it, it bubbles away, but it, it, there is a security in the group, the tribe mentality that that seems to work 
for me. That was Glenn Robbins, and if you like what you heard there and you want to hear the full episode, head to tofop.com. That's T-O-F-O-P.com. Now, it's Podcast Mike here for our Philosophy series. Today, we're looking at the theme of comedy, and let's go over to Judith Lucy now, a beloved performer who talks about her move from Perth to Melbourne and how she entered the world of comedy. Enjoy. But what I guess I'm trying to do, and it goes to your point of like trying to live in the moment, is you know that Rudyard Kipling thing of like t- treating you know both you know the the compliments and the absolute negatives both as you know strangers. Those that idea that neither of those things are really true. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. And so being able to take on board negative criticism or vitriol and just kind of say, okay, even if it hurt me for a minute, now I'm done with that. My life goes on. Yeah. And and the same with positive stuff because I think that. You know, believing your own hype or thinking that you're as good as you could ever be or any of those sort of things are also not good for you. You know, will keep you in. So I just now, I used to be a person who wouldn't read them. I used to be a person who would try to, and now I'm just like, you know what? I just take it all in and all out and try not to let any of it kind of affect who I am and what I am and, you know, where I am at right now. Well, you are further down the road than I, Will Anderson. I absolutely know that I can take things ridiculously personally, even right. even though logically I know that's insane. Where do you get feedback from? Like uh, if you, uh, you know, I mean, and I don't think reviews are the place to get that sort of feedback, but do you have somebody that you consult? Do you have someone that you bounce ideas off? Do you have someone who, if you're not sure about something, you say, can you come and have a look at this script or stand in the back of the room or is it all just you and I really I just have faith in the audience yeah I guess I oh look obviously I've got I've got friends um (laughs) (laughs) really and uh and you know I respect their opinion a great deal and you know they've been coming to see me for a long time and so I will certainly listen to what they've got to say but I guess again when it comes to stand-up I remember like the first few years I used to do that tell me about that I would love to know what your first few years tell me set the scene a little uh, about when you first started and what the scene was like Ah, look, for starters, uh, so I just moved over from Perth. Mm -hmm. I could not have been more green as a person. I mean, so I moved to Melbourne when I was 20. I knew one person. She was kind of my best friend from Curtin University in WA. Um, I was still a virgin. I mean, who cares? But it's just to give you an idea of like, I just didn't know anything about anything. I moved to Melbourne, um, as a lot more people back then did. I actually wanted to be an actor. Mm. That didn't really pan out. Um, I did. Comedy was somehow all my, always my plan B, and I was, I don't know how, looking back, I was dimly aware of the fact that a lot of comedy was coming out of Melbourne. So I came here, I, I will always remember the very first time I, I walked into The Last Laugh. Like, I'd never even been to a theatre restaurant, so right. I just thought it was <laughs> incredible. Hang on, there's entertainment and food? What? This? You know, the waiters were wacky, you know, and I remember um, the irony was that because I would wanted to go to VCA and didn't get in, and, of course, all of the waiters and waitresses were drama students. So, like, Reese Muldoon worked there, Alison White worked there, 
Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I uh, just uh, we'll cite and we'll get back to this, but it's uh, the first time I ever saw comedy was at the Last Laugh. I was 15 years old. Wow. And my friends and I had fake IDs because it was like you know they served alcohol there, so you had to be over 18. We came down um, from the country on the train to see Jamoan because oh we'd God. seen him on the big gig. Yes, I and was going to say he, started, who was he did his uh, seagulls. Don't have you know your girls? Oh, yeah. We would repeat that routine, and then we found out he was on at the Last Laugh. So we've got our fake IDs and we've caught the train and of course we know nothing about anything yeah. you know so we've got there at like 7 for a 9 o'clock show or whatever so there's just all these kids in their pretend suits drinking but they let us drink and <laughs> You know, it's so, the last laugh for you. And we didn't understand uh, how a comedy night worked. Yeah. You know, we just thought it would be Jamoan. Like, you know, and so there was uh, like a host and two support acts and then Jamoan. So do you remember who they were? Yeah, I do. And this is why it's worth telling this story. Because <laughs> we're just sitting there like spoiled kids, you know, s- sipping our like margaritas, you know, <laughs> going, oh, no, we just wanted to see Jamoan. I wanted to see this other mm. bullshit. The first one was a very good friend of mine still, a guy called Steph Torek, but was doing his character Pasha. Pasha. Yeah. Then two guys that I had never heard of, but apparently were making some waves on the Melbourne comedy scene. Uh, Tony Martin, then Mick Malloy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's a shame they never went on to do much. And even then, like I remember the takeaway from the night was Tony was just like, I mean, made us laugh yeah. in a way that, you know, we just, we were like, who is this guy? And what is he it was you know, just brilliant, brilliant. So uh, anyway, go on. But you walked into the last laugh. And every, yeah. I reckon the first show I saw was um, Mark Trevorrow as Bob Down doing Pick a Hit with Gina Riley as oh Coralie God. Hollow and Pete Rosethorn as the DJ. So <laughs> I just went... This is the best night of my entire life. (laughs) I just thought it was fantastic. And I lived in Fitzroy, which is which was very near the last laugh. And so yeah, I just started going to see comedy all the time. And you know, I so I saw like the found objects there, I saw the Cabbage Brothers there, I saw the Natural Normans, which of course was Denise Scott, Linda Gibson, Sal Upton. And was most of the stuff at that time, you know, that collaborative sort of like almost sketch comedy on stage stuff? Or there were, was there a lot of like just solo stand-up stuff as well? Well, it was the whole gamut. Right. And I think that's what I loved. So, you know, one minute you'd see Liz Sadler playing the saw and the next minute you'd see Harry who didn't doing right. some zany <laughs> magic. You know, so it was it was all of that. And it was, the, there were a lot of groups. But, you know, uh, I noticed uh, Marty Putz was in town not that long ago. I remember going nuts for Putz back then. <laughs> so it was just something for everyone. And a lot of straight stand-ups. You know, I'm sure I saw Rachel Berger there yep. pretty early on. I'm sure I saw Greg Fleet there pretty early on. So Anthony Morgan. And I got to the point where I started to think maybe I could do this. Now, were you making friends with these people at the oh, time? Good were you God, in no. The, no, you were just no, going as a... absolutely not. And in fact, I do remember a couple of unbelievably embarrassing things that I did when I was 20, 21. The first was I remember being at the Veggie Bar on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy with my friend Audrey and going, oh my God, the found objects are <laughs> and I'd seen them on Hey Hey It's Saturday. Yep. And I thought they were hilarious. And I think I actually followed Frank when yep. they left Frank Woodley, when they left. Because uh, for people who don't know, the found objects were Colin Lane, Frank Woodley yes. and uh, Scott. Scott. 
Oh my who went God, to isn't that te- didn't he go to teach in the Northern Territory he or something? He did, Alice Springs. Alice Springs, yeah. Um, that will come back to me, I'm sure. But yep. so yes, went on to become yes. Lionel Woodley. But People anyway, would know Woodley. I went. Uh, basically, then I sort of tailed them on Brunswick Street, and when Frank was at the ATM, I went up to him and I actually said, "My name's Judith Lucy, and I've just come over from Perth, and I think I might want to be a stand-up comedian." And unbelievably, you know, well, not now that I know Frank, he couldn't have been nicer. He was like, "Oh, Colin." Scott and the news agent. Do you want to meet them? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that happened. I saw Rod Quantock in a news agent. It was all happening for me right. at, at news agencies. Yeah. Um, I went up to him, the uh, one in Clifton Hill, gave him the same spiel. Not only was he incredibly friendly, he gave me his home phone number <laughs> and said, if you ever want any help. I never used it, right. of course, but... So I was running around doing things like that, and also then I got a job. You were like you were like Commissioner Gordon. You were the only person who had a direct line to Captain Snoops. <laughs> We've got a sleep emergency. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that was a number people wanted back then. Don't you worry. But um, but of course I'd seen him on Australia standing in, right. and I you know thought he was amazing as well. So and I, also something you have to understand, and you would understand this coming from a country town, growing up in Perth. The weatherman was a celebrity. Right. Well, like, even still today, like when you go to Perth, they have their own celebrities that aren't celebrities anywhere else yes. in the country and they call them Perthanalities. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. I wish that wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember like going to the Astor Cinema and seeing Mark Seymour from Hunters and Collectors right. like the first week I was here and again, losing my fucking mind and just going, oh my God, you see people off the telly walking around here. Right. So, you know, I was just overawed by all of it. Okay. But yeah, so that, that's an interesting perspective to me is that the idea of starting something as a fan of it. You know, like, I mean, I think that a lot of people who are comedians, well, at least from a certain era, I, it's a bit hard to tell now. I mean, mm. obviously, I'm not starting now. Sometimes I think because there's so many people doing it now, there's probably a – and because people now can do comedy as a career option. Yes. Like, people can see a really solid, I'll do this and then I'll do this and then I'll do this. And I still feel even when I started 20 years ago, it had an element of you're running away, join the circus. Absolutely. And if I had, you know, told Sister Aileen at Santa Maria Ladies College that that was what I was going to do, I mean, she would have sent me to a psychiatric ward. It was not seen as a career. It was certainly not seen as a job, that's for sure. But when the acting fell through, I was enough of a wanker that I knew I wanted to keep performing. And I was always, the reason I wanted to go to VCA was because in their little blurb, they said they encourage you to make your own work. And I was always attracted to that. And the thing I never liked about acting was this idea of auditioning and waiting for the phone to ring. Right. So I always liked the idea. And then having to do someone else's. I mean, I have so many friends who are actors and, the great thing about being a comedian is you, if, if you're not getting any work, you just have to make make something up in your head and put it on. And but also, you need the microphone. if it's good and bad, it's your own fault. Whereas Absolutely. I've, like, I have friends who are great actors but who are in terrible, terrible yes. shows because they have to pay their bills and you're like, oh, but, you know, that's... That that must not be, you know, rewarding. You you want to – anyway, so. Well, no, it's summed up for me by a story that I – it could be apocryphal, but, you know, I, I think when you hear it, you'll go, oh, no, that's true. Uh, because it does involve Greg Fleet. <laughs> and he was in a production of The Tempest. Also, the, the thing about Fleet is that it's impossible to defame him because he doesn't remember half of the shit. Well, either, so. but I think he'd be pretty happy with this story <laughs> okay, anyway. Cool. So he's in a production of The Tempest. He's playing the fool – 
and one night he's delivering his monologue and he doesn't get many laughs. So apparently at the end of it he actually said, hey, I didn't write this shit. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's how you feel. And I, I know, like, Frank Woodley has done theatre and had a similar, I don't think he's actually said that, right. but had a similar thing of, oh, God, you know, you kind of want to, if something's not working or if you don't like the script, you do want to step out and say, this isn't really working, is it? Which you can do, of so, course, if you're I, a stand-up. I'm going to say that he would have done that because yes. I'm going to tell you why. I, I've only really acted, and I won't even call it acting, but I've only done it once. I've never had any interest in it, but years ago, when I first started out, they were doing that, you know, production of Midsummer Night's Dream oh, they yep, do in the yep. park. And they cast, you know, they were cast comics in it to play like the lesser roles. So Corinne Grant was in it and Fleety was in it and I was in it. And so Fleety and I had a lot of scenes together, you know, and uh, he would outrageously improvise in these scenes. And often then he'd forget his li- his biggest trick, and he had to be really aware of it, was that if Fleety forgot one of his lines, which would happen more often than you would think, he would just turn to the person who was closest to him and just go, what sayest thou? <laughs> and- <laughs> Of course. Uh, so I, I, I am interested in. You said you always wanted to be a performer. Why do you think that was? Where did that come from? Um, I just to finish that thought. Oh, I was going to say, just yes. seeing a lot of those acts of the last love. I was so struck by how clearly people were making up their own shit. Mm -hmm. And that was really appealing to me. Why did I want to be an actor? That is a mystery, Will Anderson, because it's certainly, you know, my father was an accountant. My mother was not really allowed to do much. So she she just sat at home and had eating disorders. Um, I am adopted, of course. So the only wild card is I don't know who my father is. So maybe it was Bill Hunter. I don't know. (laughs) But seriously, I have no idea where it came from. I mean, you know. Best episode of Where Did You Come From Ever? Yeah. Gee, that would have been ace. But, you know, um, if I wanted to do Pop Psychology 101, I would probably go, My parents didn't pay me enough attention. And there was a lot of look at me, look at me, look at me, and them simply looking elsewhere. And uh, by the time I realised that, and of course becoming a performer and becoming, you know, reasonably successful at what I did made no difference whatsoever. Uh, But, you know, by the time I worked that out, thankfully I enjoyed what I was doing. So that was okay. But what about you? Uh, Look, you know what, that's an interesting question. I I, I think that, you know, one of my favourite little pop psychology sort of quotes is you know that you you've got to know what you're running to or what you're running from Mm. right and you know and often it can be both in the same moment but I, I think about that a lot in regards to like the origin story of what I do why do I do what I do you know like my dad my dad's a farmer my granddad's a farmer my brother's a farmer you know why is that not what I'm doing mm. right now you know and I mean I I, I don't think it was the – I mean, I was the first kid, like, and you're on a farm, so I guess you do have a lot of time by yourself, you know, to just, like, you know, with your own imagination and having to kind of make up things and those sort of things. But I think mostly for me it was like I just didn't want to live my life on that one road. Yeah. And I was looking for some way to get out of there. But, God, there were a lot of ways you could have gotten out of there. Right. I, I loved comedy. I think, you know, for me – no, he's – okay – 
So the first, when I really fell in love with comedy, when I first like noticed comedy, I remember that very specifically because we only had two TV networks, right? We had the ABC and we had like a Southern Cross, which was like a composite channel of like, you know, some other commercial networks and that sort of thing. And that's all we had. And we mostly watched the ABC, right? And so there was two shows that came along. Now, I was familiar with shows like Australia, You're Standing in It and The Gillies Report and, you know, some of that stuff, but it was, I was just a little bit young yes, to kind this of... this is where me being six years old... Right, just in that zone. Yep. For me, when it really hit me, it was two shows in particular, Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun and The Big Gig. Those two shows just completely changed my life. Yeah. Yeah, a 14-year-old kid sitting on the farm going... And it, what, it, what it was was, yes, the comedy was brilliant, but for me it was like, oh, they, I think these things right like this is the way i look at the world okay and this is not what my friends say about gay people or this is not what my friends say about disabled people but like i kind of like agree with this guy on the telly Mm. and how he's saying it and i suddenly like oh so you can say these things if you're funny people will let you say these things and have these opinions if you can make these opinions funny so that's definitely i can i can remember that and I remember like taking that through like high school when I guess, you know, I had a, that sort of anti-authoritarian streak. If I had one thing that defined me, it was just, and probably still to this day, is that I am naturally suspicious of unearned authority, you know, and that's probably the one defining thing that I just don't have time for ties and bullshits and mm. titles. And I was getting angry. Someone was the other day was talking about how cute Prince George is. And I was like, and I said, but don't you think it's ridiculous that that tiny little fat kid, cute kid, don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, who can't wipe his own fucking ass yet, is going to be the constitutional head of our country. And like, I just find that stuff bullshit because he fell out of the right vagina. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we I don't live, we don't live in the Hobbit anymore. Yeah. Are we still having kings? Yeah. Like a baby comes out and we fucking hold it in the air like fucking Simba and we're yeah. all meant to be like bow down to the ki- Have we not moved on from magic and goblins and yeah. shit? Yeah. No, that amazes me. So well. that still is something that, you know defines me like you know sometimes when people have a go at me for like what what i'll say about politics or politicians or whatever and they'll think you're biased but for me it's always been anti-authority you kick up you know yeah and so that definitely came from those shows and that carried through what i did so i guess i fell in love with that then and then i kind of got more broadly interested in comedy out of that the interesting thing for me was that in my lifetime you know if you if you'd said to me at 14, you know, these two things, these two things that are most instrumental in my story, uh, Ted Robinson, who yeah, produced the big gig, was the first person who gave me my first TV gig, yeah. which was uh, uh, Good News Week. And then he was the producer of my show, The Glass House. Mm-hmm. And then Andrew Denton it was the producer who gave, me my, who gave me Gruen and was the producer of that. I mean, the two people who kind of really most influenced me doing it have been the two people I've spent the majority of my adult working life working with which i mean is kind of i don't know i don't know what that means it's just oh you know, the universe works in strange <laughs> and mysterious ways well um so when you decided to get into comedy i mean where you are now is this what you thought it would be like I, look i said this to somebody uh, and i'd like your perspective on this as well um about i've <sighs> I want to say this without – this is not meant to be sounding arrogant. I want to be as honest as possible I can be about this. I've just – I've achieved more than I could have ever reasonably expected. Mm. Like if you'd asked me when I first started out, like I would have been happier with half of what's happened. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm not happy, but I would have been happy with. Yeah. You know, if you told me at the start that half of what's happened to me would happen, I would have been wrapped. So there was kind of a point where that stuff, I just stopped thinking about it. Yeah. You know, you're kind of like, well, I don't really need to achieve. I, I, I got to be a comedian. I got to do the thing that I want to do. Like, I, it's done. No one, I, I, like, I've... Yeah, I've done it for 20 years. This year is my 20th year in a row at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm. Whatever else happens, if I stop doing comedy like on April 20, like this year, I will have done 20 years in a row at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm. I did comedy. Like, I did it. It's done. Like, I mean, as in like, you know, I got to do what I wanted to do. Again, if you'd like to hear the full chat with Will and Judith Lucy, head to tofop.com where the entire podcast archive is up and ready to hear. Hey, Michelle Laurie is an absolute legend in comedy. She's been on radio, she's been on TV, she's done stand-up, and more recently she's a podcast and a writer as well. And she talks about a bit of it here in her chat with Will Anderson. Enjoy. So when you're nervous, you feel like you step up. Like you were just saying, if you want to see the best show come tonight. Yeah, in the old days. I'm a bit of a choker. Okay, so, so. in the old days, I reckon I was too. Yeah. Like get in your own head or take yeah. things into the show. I think one of the biggest skills that over the years of doing it so much that I think that, you know, has improved my performance is my ability to uh, cup. What do they call it? Carpetmentalize? No, carpet. What, what do I compartmentalize? Compartmentalize. Yes. Carpetmentalize. Com- I get it. You know when you no when yeah. you hypnotize carpet. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, carpetmentalize. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm good at that, but not on not not on stage so much. Although I always say to people that stand up taught me that stand up taught me to compartmentalize because you know you're having a shitty day, but you still got to go and do the job. So. Um, yeah, I feel uh, that's very Buddhist as well. I'm, I'm a keen Buddhist. And so, you know, that being in the moment thing, I think I learned from stand up. However, still at gigs, a bit of a choker. There was a point in my stand up comedy career where I was like, that's what I want from it now. I want to find out now. I'm, I'm what I don't want to do. This, this is not a podcast about me. No, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I don't get to see you very often. So if we have to do it on mics, that's fine. Um, what I uh, like to think is there was a certain point where my career was all about proving to people that I belonged here. Yes. Right? Yes. And so that's when you're most likely to choke yeah. because you don't honestly believe yeah. that you belong. So what you're trying to go out on stage is say to people, no, 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 please, I belong <laughs> to be here. And there's always a bit of that that goes to the audience. You know, you know when you sit in a comedy audience and sometimes you're like, this person's doing really well, but I still don't feel relaxed. Yes. I think there's a point as a comedian where I go, no, I belong here. Now that I know that I belong here, mm. let's see how good I can be at this. Yeah. And that will involve putting myself in high pressure situations and see how I adapt to those situations or throw myself into situations. I do these entire improvised stand-up shows yeah. now and again, the thing that I had to come to terms with that was some of this might be shit. Yes. Some of this might be hard. And if it's shit and I have to walk through that moment and, and take on the next moment anew, afresh, and not let this wreck the next 40 minutes. Right. I'll happily talk to a thousand strangers from a stage. Yes. But I, it's, I find it hard to talk to six strangers that are, you know, I don't like ringing the restaurant to book. Yes. <laughs> Me neither. I'm like, why can't I text you people? You know, and when someone rings you on your phone, you're like, oh, you freak. What are you yeah, doing? What text are you me. Doing? You sicko. Yeah, I'm the same. Absolutely. So I would sit there just like. <laughs> Even last night, I went to see uh, Dara O'Brien, who's this Irish comedian. And yeah. uh, I was there by myself and uh, was at Hamer Hall. And I sat down next to some people who knew who I was. And they were really nice guys. And so, like, for 20 minutes, they were like trying to engage me in conversation. And I was like, 
I mean, you're nice and I don't want to be rude, but <laughs> what are you what doing? Are you doing? <laughs> are you I, I was really looking forward to just sitting here in silence for 20 minutes before the show. I thought I might check my phone oh and my now God. I'm like having to engage in a conversation. Oh, <laughs> I hate it when I get in the lift at work and someone gets in with me and I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh. This is like my last minute of solitude. Right. <laughs> what are you doing? You've ruined it. Yes. Uh, the ambitions you had five years ago or 10 years ago, starkly different to the ambitions you have for yourself now? Yeah, but I don't know if that's Buddhism or ageing. I don't know. I well, just, it could be both. I'm just obsessed with retirement at the moment. <laughs> it's all I think about. I mean, it feels like you're someone who's halfway through a marathon who's really <laughs> looking for the line. I, I really am. Oh, my God. It's all I think about is how can I make enough money to retire right. or just even like semi-retire? I'm not well, asking for the big one. I think semi-retire, right? Because yes. as a communicator, surely you don't, because no. you don't get into this with dreams of you'll be able to retire young. <laughs> no. Like it's not like the reason I want to do stand-up comedy yeah. in Melbourne is because <laughs> I have plans to retire before I'm 50. Like, <laughs> no, but I just want to – that's been quite recent and like I did always still have those big dreams of I want to have a big TV show of my own and all that stuff, but now that's just gone somehow and I want semi-retirement. I want to just podcast and write – solo pursuits are yep. what it's all about for me now and like even podcasting I interview people and talk to people and at the moment I'm doing true crime so that's just like really niche interest for me right and then I go home and I edit which is I find really fun editing in bit of music bit of something I found on the internet old interview bit of you know and I find just being alone and doing that really fun so I just <laughs> want to find a way where I can be alone yeah. more often that's my ambition now. Uh, do you worry that when you are alone, are you comfortable in your own? Because uh, this is the thing I think a lot of stand-up comedians have um, is that I'm very comfortable being by myself. Me too. And I quite like people think, oh, is it lonely on the road and stuff like that? And you're like, oh God, like yeah. I'm, I'm in at peace. Like I've got a whole day where I don't have to talk to somebody. Oh yeah. I can walk around the city. I can listen to a podcast. Have you ever spoken to Jamoan about the way he tours England? No. It's incredible. Do you might have him on the podcast, actually. You must, because he's such a fascinating dude. Yeah, and it'd be good to get him on something where, like, he, it's oh. not to be comedic, because he is actually a really fascinating guy. Right. When, I mean, like, his comedy is great as well, but, I mean, he was actually the first stand-up comedian I ever oh. saw live. But His comedy is brilliant, yeah. and then when you get a chance to talk to him about the rest of his life, you're like, wow. So, he's got a tribe of kids now. Yeah. And But what he likes to do is a couple of times a year, he flies to England, he hires a car, but he's a tight ass, so he hires one not at the airport, but a few <laughs> kilometres away. <laughs> Typical dad. And he gets in his car and he drives alone around England and yeah, he stops right. at night time and does gigs. And during the day, he does stuff like looks at cathedrals. Right. Just stuff that interests him. If he sees something interesting, he stops. And he'll do that for weeks and months on end alone. Yeah. Well, yeah. I say to people, that's like what touring in America is like, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. Like I've done 20 cities or something over there now. So like wow. half of the country. Yeah. And often like I'm in the cities for five days. So really all I'm doing is like you might have a bit of press in the morning or whatever, but essentially you're doing like a show at night yeah. and you have all day to – so I'll just walk around cities. And it's like I have had like, mm. you know, probably a two-year – holiday around america like i know more about chicago than most people who live there you know like and so yeah there is a real element of that that i that i like so you have no problem with because i know there are other people like you hear this all the time people who just don't like being by themselves or get bored very easily when they're by themselves oh god no i love being alone with my dog that's like my dream scenarios me and my dog jacko big jack 
and me just wandering around the house and him just wandering behind me and I chat with him all day and it's a wonderful conversation and um, and writing, you know? Like I'm just really getting into writing as I get older. It's such a – like putting a puzzle together every day. It's so fun. How do you write? What's your process? I try and write a thousand words a day only because I didn't know how to write books and so I Googled it and I read that that's what Hemingway did. Okay. Of all people. I and mean, I went, okay. Might as well. Yeah. Okay. So I, I got some advice. I'm just going to go in with Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write the same way as Ernest Hemingway did. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, yeah, he seemed to know what he's doing. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I have. I just write a thousand words a day and sometimes they're shit words. Yeah. But I do a thousand a day and and then, you know, high five myself when I create a callback and all those great things I loved about stand-up, writing stand-up, you know. But in I, I always tried to be really kind of tightly edited in stand-up i tried to get my jokes per minute to a really high level because dave grant taught us that you know and uh so this is so freeing to feel like oh i don't have to do that i can be a bit more long-winded i can follow tangents yeah i mean like writing and and comedy writing or any sort of writing but like you know you look at someone like david sedaris and Mm. yeah when you look at his writing you realize it's not like you were writing a column, you'd put a joke in every yes. paragraph sort of thing. But he, you know, tells it much more like a, you know, a Billy Connolly story. The thing that I remember from being, seeing Billy Connolly on his last tour was often the first minute and a half, two minutes of a bit, there really wouldn't be any jokes in it at all. Yeah. He'd just be entertainingly setting the scene so that when he kind of did get to the funny bit, all the things had been painted so richly yeah. that you gave a shit about the comedic thing and it paid off, of course, yeah. much harder because of that. Yeah. On stage, you know, two minutes can feel like 30 minutes. That's like it. if I you're standing the up courage, there without laughs. I never had the courage to do that, you know, to really, really invest in the storytelling. You know, you'd see Matt King in the old right. days would do a lot of that stuff as well. And people used to say that, that, that Melbourne comedy was about you could stand there all night and tell a story. Like that's really <laughs> sad, you know. But then I did, I got to this point, that was my challenge when I was doing stand-up last really seriously about eight years ago. I do remember that. Remember that? Like, because I, I was, uh, just when I started out, because I was doing Melbourne and Sydney at the time, and you go to Sydney and they'd be like, oh, what are you going to do? Tell a story? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, probably. I probably will tell a story. And it gets came to the shit so like, bad. What are you going to do? I know. Isn't this just telling stories? I know, just telling them real fast. That's right. what they do in Sydney. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. You know, um, you're still telling a story, right? Yeah. But the last time I was doing stand-up, I set myself this challenge of like really lots of jokes, yep. like really packing a lot of laughs in and trying to pack as many jokes into a setup as possible. Right. And I really got into that. But yeah, I'm off that now. Now I'm Jokes really... in the setups can ruin the jokes in the punchlines. Like totally. I'm, a, I'm a very punchline heavy comic. Like, uh-huh. you know, that's my attitude and my approach is like, you know, here are all my ideas. Yes. <laughs> You'll like some of them. You choose the ones on the way, you know? Yeah. But... I must admit that even in structure forms, instead of going, oh, if this joke's going to have six jokes in it, like, you know, if this thing goes for two minutes and I want like six times it laughs or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that's the numbers, but just yes. to use an example. Rather than doing three in the setup and three in the punchline, yeah. do one in the setup and do five in the punchline or whatever it yeah, is. You know? yeah. like, load the funny in the bit where it's meant to be funny. Yeah. Because sometimes telling a joke on the way to something actually takes away a little from it the effect does. of the thing that comes after. But at the same time, I felt like I was missing opportunities and I felt like it was sort of indulgent to allow myself a minute without a joke, Right, honestly. Like no, I was thinking, you know... When you're on stage, that's absolutely the yeah. case. Do you watch much comedy? Not anymore. No. So no. that's 
the thing that I always find is mm. when you go and watch it, yeah. you realize that a minute on stage is fucking yeah. nothing. But when you're up there, like to the audience who are sitting there, often if you've just said something really, really funny, that minute of setup can come as a great relief. Yeah. You know, they get an opportunity to regroup and get ready to yeah. laugh as hard as they did at the last bit. Yeah. But when you're on stage and you haven't got to laugh for a minute, you're like, oh, uh, oh, that was it. I'm not funny anymore. Oh, God. This I knew this day of... would come at some stage, oh, but it yeah. turns out I'm completely not funny anymore. Oh, Everyone's seen through it. That's terrifying <laughs> to me, that feeling. And now I do like some Buddhist talks, you know, yeah. and even then I can't stand to go without a laugh. Right. Longer than a minute. Even with the Buddhist. Even with the Buddhism, I'm like, I'm, I'm throwing in gear. I'm doing a bit of g'day, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Like, I just need it to still be funny. Yeah. It's like a security blanket to feel like they're engaged and they're listening and they like me. Yeah. Which it's that like pathetic begging again. Yeah, but, but I think that's a thing that you feel very much as the producer of content rather than the consumer of it. Like, yeah. I mean, I think about, we were talking about podcast lengths off, uh, yes. off air. And I said, I never listen to a podcast and think, the only thing I re- mostly think is this wasn't long enough. Yeah, I was right. enjoying that. I wish it was longer. Yeah. If it's too long, like if you're like, oh, it went an hour and a half, but my drive to work's only 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, guess what? I'll just listen to the other bit on the way home. Yeah, that's my favourite thing to do, actually. Yeah, yeah give myself a cliffhanger in the car park. Yeah. You know, to it's come like back you've got to. an episode of like, oh, I can't wait to hear yes, how that ends. Yes, I do love that. Let people make their own choices. Yeah. I shouldn't I, be worried. This yes, is my Buddhist approach. Yes. It's like, I'll make it how long I want to make it, and I'm, then they can make their own choices about how they consume it. I'm just it. always self-conscious <laughs> about being boring. I'm always thinking, am I being really boring? Like, even today probably. with you, I'm like... I mean, probably I to know. some people at some stage. Yeah, like what I'll say to you when this is over was, is that was that all right? Was that boring? Well, well I'm pretty okay? happy that you did this, and I'm enjoying it very much. Good. And if people aren't, like you said, I that's guess. their world that's and that's their, their world. choice. Yeah. And you can't I'm control. enjoying it. Yeah. Right. So that's fine. Yeah, you're right. That's all you need to do. But this is why I don't perform live much anymore. Well, let's I talk just... about that because I, you know, um, I am interested in that because we started out together mm-hmm. and you started out with a generation of comedians who have gone on to become household names in various different ways. Mm-hmm. But it was also there had been a great generation of stand-up comedians before us, yeah. but we were the ones who came along at a time where the hard work that various people had done kind of coalesced into an idea where what we did became an industry. Up until that point, it was a hobby almost that some people had managed to kind of find a way out of into a career, but in yeah. a general sense, you were kind of still running away to join the circus. Oh, totally, and I think that... Our, a lot of our generation was inspired by those people who were rock and fucking roll, man. Right. Weren't they? I oh, mean, yeah. the people we were watching just as we started to get into comedy never ever looked like they were going to be a mainstream in the mainstream at never. all. They were they were Greg Fleet, Judith Lucy, Anthony Morgan. They well, were I always say of Anthony Morgan that I reckon <laughs> that Five of the best 10 gigs I've ever seen in my life were Anthony Morgan. And I guarantee you nine of the 10 worst gigs I've ever seen. <laughs> oh and my God. some of them were more compelling than the best ones. Oh my God. Like, I mean, you, these were people who were genuinely going out. I mean, I remember seeing him do a set at the Prince Pat one night where he talked about what it was like to go down on a woman <laughs> at a time when the only way someone would talk about that on stage would be to make a cheap Yes. joke about it and he instead did this 40 minute routine where he described in this oh. almost like poetic yep. fashion like him being inside this woman oh, and wow. it was like I don't even know if it was comedy <laughs> but it was fuck I've remembered it for 18 fucking years or whatever it's been that is I, I can still remember where I was standing and I was just in the audience going 
Whatever this is, this is fucking something, you know? Like, that's it. So, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted yeah. to be a rock star like yeah. those guys. I wanted to, you know, yeah, I, I never wanted to be uh, in a magazine or anything like that or yeah. in the paper, you know? I wanted to work in a dingy pub in Melbourne because I came from Queensland and this was rock and roll to me. This was like alternative lifestyle interest just an interesting life that's all i wanted well i think it'd be interesting very different for the kids today because i'm sure there's plenty of people and you see it in their work like and whatever got business plans these kids you know well i mean even if they don't even if they want to be run away to join the circus yeah. people other people have business plans for them yeah. and other people go well this is the way you do it you had a really good festival show this year yeah. so next year you do this and then we'll yeah. try to get you involved in this and then the next progression is this and and really afraid of making mistakes yeah. like when i think of jude and fleety you know in the olden days um and morgs the things that they were doing and saying in public would absolutely scare off everybody in the industry now they wouldn't touch them right they'd be terrified and i think that that's not the fault of the young performers. No, yeah. They are now in a different environment yeah. where all these things are there. Yeah. For us, like no one was like, when are you going to get a radio job? No. Because I'm like, well, you're <laughs> never going to get a radio job. They certainly don't give radio jobs to idiots like you. No. So. I remember when you got a radio job and we were like, what even is that? What do you... <laughs> God, you have to get up so early. So How early. awful. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> but at least it was with Triple J, so it was still right. kind of rock and roll and cool, yeah. you know? But um, then we went into this world where as we grew up, yeah. you suddenly go from a world of like being on stage, doing stand-up comedy, saying whatever you like, being the first person. And this again was a time before Twitter and things like that made – there was a time where stand-up comedy could be very dangerous. Like if not 9-11 or Port Arthur or yeah. Michael Hutchins died. <laughs> yeah, you could be – I shouldn't a, be laughing about no, that, but it's an in-joke. It's an in-joke. Yeah, yeah. Michelle used to have a very, very good joke about Michael Hutchins and when he died on that day, I did send her a message you going, did. I'm so sorry <laughs> that you won't be able to do that joke anymore. <laughs> you did send me a condolence message that day. It was very sweet of you because I was thinking about that. But, um, but, you know, it had that capacity to, you know, if it was an era of Trump or whatever yeah. before the internet, you know, you would go to local stand-up clubs and you would see people say things that you would never hear anyone say on television or radio or anywhere else. Whereas now with podcasts and Twitter yeah. and Facebook and all those sort of things, you know, stand-ups had to change as well because yeah. of that. You know, you can't I, just... Look, you know, I'm all for political correctness in a lot of ways um, because I think, you know, if, if the worst thing that happens to you is that you can't be mean to somebody, you should have to live with that, right. you know. But then the other day, you know, it was April Fool's Day and this I, I saw a little bit this actress, American actress, posted a photo of herself with a fake baby bump, said I'm pregnant. Okay. And then came out and went, no, I'm not. April Fool's, it was just a prop at work. And these, the internet turned on her and said how insensitive to people who were having fertility issues. No. I just I mean, Jesus Christ. Everything's sensitive to someone. So sensitive. I've really felt sorry for her, you know. I don't know who she is. I've never heard of her. But suddenly I was like, get off this woman's back. I mean, the other thing is too, she's a woman and women get pregnant. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. something that she could like have a joke with or some ownership I with or so. whatever. Yeah. I mean, um, I understand sensitivities, by the way. Yeah. And I don't think that we should be um, adverse to sensitivities. I'm, but I'm all for it. I remember when jokes about sexual assault were fine and I'm really glad they're not anymore. And yeah, absolutely. I get that. No, nah, me too. And it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for Thank doing you. it. I knew it would be great, but it has been. Uh, if people enjoy it, please rate it, uh, you know, share it around. Please. Uh, the more you guys like it, the more likely I am to continue doing it, guys. You know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Willosophy. 
Uh, we'll be putting out new episodes each Tuesday and Thursday where we'll be going back through the archive and pulling out all the best bits from the interviews Will's done over the last few years. If you like anything you heard on today's episode or you want to check out any other episodes of the podcast, again, head to tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com. You can find it all there. Otherwise, thank you so much again for listening.